time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. My son is now a young adult, but all his life he's had one great joy in um, having fun with people, and that is to scare people. He would jump out on you with the least provocation. In fact, he made it his hobby to hide from us and to jump out and scare us. If we passed by a closet, he was likely to come out. He would hide in our food pantry, and when we open it up, he would burst out. He was constantly trying to scare us. Now, to be fair to him... He also liked to be scared very much. In fact, one time I covered myself up in his bed and waited for him to come in, mainly because it was revenge. He had scared me, and I was just getting him back. So I was lying in his bed, covered up, and he came into the room, and I popped out of bed with a good scream, and he was terrified, which only led to him just laughing hysterically. He enjoyed both scaring people and being scared. In fact, he still does that. So the reason I bring that up is because that's not the kind of scare or fear we're talking about. There is a difference between scared and fearful. Think of scared as something as a sudden startle reaction. So somebody jumps out at you or you hear a big bang or something happens that gets you a startle response. Now, that is your body going into something of a fear response. But I want to draw a distinction between being scared by something, by something, a a startle response, and the true fear that we're talking about here. The fear that I'm talking about, the fear that you want to tame is that place that holds you back in life, that place that keeps you from moving forward. So as we're talking about taming the fear, taming the dragon of fear, think about it as different than just being scared. There's no way that I'm going to teach you how to not have a startle response. I've been startled for the last almost 20 years, last 19 years, better than 19 years. And in through, throughout that time, I haven't learned to not be startled. I might fake it better now. You know, I might be able to act like it doesn't scare me. But when my son jumps out from behind something, it startles me. And there's no way to do that. You feel that surge of adrenaline and that sudden hit of chemicals in your body that tells you you've been startled. There is no stopping that. But that's not what worries us. That's not what gets in our way because in some ways that startle response is what keeps you safe in the instant something happens because it suddenly puts you on alert and often gets you to duck or move out of the way. The problem is this bigger, deeper fear, the fear that grows within us and the fear that holds us back from doing things. You see, fear either grows more dominant or it is tamed in life, depending on what you do. It grows more dominant when you listen to the fear, when you're controlled by it, and when you avoid the fear of fearful things. And that's really the interesting thing about fear is it grows on itself. You might be fearful of something, but then we end up being fearful of the feeling of being fearful of something. And then we grow that even further. And so part of what happens when fear is dominant is because We've listened to it. We've fed the dragon of fear. We've we've taught that dragon of fear to sit on our shoulder and grow bigger and stronger. And we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that that fear has been our friend, that it's somehow protecting us, that the dragon we have is protecting us from other things when actuality that dragon is controlling us and trapping us deeper and deeper into the cave of fear. So when we begin to avoid things, when we begin to listen to that that dragon of fear, when we avoid situations because of fear, the fear grows. 
It gives it power and strength. It's as if it builds energy from us. We, we give it energy as we avoid those things. And then fear begins to be a dominant force in our life, as opposed to when we tame our fear. Taming fear doesn't mean you ignore fear. It means that you hear it, but you continue forward after giving it a careful look. After you ask the questions of, is there safety? Can I proceed forward? Whenever we see fear as an indicator of importance, not of avoidance, but of importance, we begin to tame the fear. We can't get rid of fear. And that's why we're not talking about how to get fear out of your life. Fear is built into us and the deepest parts of our brain and the deepest parts of our body. Fear is in there. So the real question is whether we're going to allow it to be a dominant force or a tamed force within us. Humans have this unique place in our brain where we are both predator and prey. And sometimes we are choosing which part of that brain we're referring to. And when I talk about that predator and prey, I don't mean that you're always hunting something or fleeing from something, but that the function of your brain is bound in that. If you look at other animals, for instance, let's look at horses. Horses are another pack kind of creature. They like to be in a big grouping together, but they are not predators. Horses don't hunt anything. If horses do something aggressive, it's to get away from fear. It, you know, if they hit something or kick something, it's to, to get rid of something that they feel is, is putting them at risk. Horses only have a prey mind. And so they're constantly skittish. If you get around horses, you'll notice that they all kind of respond the same way, move the same way, and they're kind of skittish when you move around them. In fact, if you've ever ridden a horse... The first thing that horse is trying to assess is whether that horse thinks you deserve respect and you deserve to keep it safe. That's, it's not looking to see if you can dominate it as much as can you keep it safe. And so horses tend to kind of test out the human to see whether you're going to keep it safe or put it in danger. Then there are other kind of creatures that have much more of a predatorial brain. If you think about the big hunting animals, they're much more predator. They're not thinking about being prey. They could possibly be prey, but they're constantly looking for how they can attack the prey. We humans have much more of an even split. We spend our time trying to figure out how to not be prey to other things, other possibilities, and we have that place where the predator brain can kick in and we can become aggressive, trying to get what we want. So we humans have the need to kind of mediate those pieces, and we humans have one other piece. That is our capacity to think. We don't think that other animals are constantly wondering about things in, down in the future and, and what might happen down the road. They're in the moment and reflecting on what happened in the past, perhaps, and trying to avoid some dangers in the past. But we humans have the capacity of thinking way down the road, the what ifs of life. And even those what ifs don't have to make any sense for us to keep pondering them. And that's why we have to figure out how to tame this fear beast, how to tame this dragon. So why do I choose dragon as the image of that animal? Well, because within us physically, there is a part of the brain that has been called the lizard brain. The lizard brain is the deepest, most primitive part of your brain that is really only trying to assess risk in the environment. It's trying to figure out if something is coming its way, is it big enough that it can do damage or is it big enough that it can be taken down? That's really the assessment of that lizard. 
I've told this story before, but it kind of illustrates that lizard brain. When I was a, a teenager, young teenager, I was at a summer camp, and it was a very rustic summer camp. I would even say it was as rustic as I've ever lived. Um, and my parents had sent me to this camp, and um, it was it was much more primitive than even in the Boy Scout camps that I went to. We would go hike a mile, mile and a half to get our food for each meal, and they just would put it in a, a garbage bag, and we would take it back to camp and cook it. And the trails were unlit, and we slept in tents on uh, on the hard uh, cots. And right around the corner from us would be the counselors. They weren't even in our tent. Now, you might wonder, was it because I'd done something wrong as a child that I got sent to this detention camp? No. This was supposed to be a good experience for me, and I did learn a lot, but one of the things I remember is late one night, we were all tucked into bed and partly gone to sleep. And one of our camp counselors was in his pup tent just around the corner. The other had gone to talk with some other camp counselors about what we were going to do the next day. And he was coming back. As he was coming up the trail, we heard him begin to yell for the other camp counselor. Well, the other camp counselor was listening to some music in his uh, pup tent. We could hear that. We could hear the boombox going in his tent, and he never heard the other counselor. So we got out, and we went to the pup tent. And as we were trying to get to this other counselor, we heard the other counselor yelling who was on the trail, be careful, don't come near me. So we carefully made our way to the pup tent, got the other counselor up, and the two counselors captured a sizable rattlesnake that had uh, decided that the, the middle of the trail was a great place to spend the night and was deciding to keep away the counselor who was trying to get back to us. So they captured it together. And the next day, we went to pay a visit to the now captive rattlesnake that was down in the headquarters office. So we traipsed down to the trail, and there was this big, coiled-up rattlesnake, as big a rattlesnake as I'd ever seen in my life, in my short years at that point. And it was not a happy rattlesnake. That rattlesnake did not want to be in that cage. And it was constantly just kind of looking around and flicking its tail. And every now and then you'd hear a little rustle of that tail and the tongue would come out. And it was just testing to see what was going to happen. So me being a little inquisitive, I would walk towards it. And I noticed that the closer I got to it, the more the tail. And as I backed away, it calmed down. And I'd walk toward it. And I would walk away. And all that was happening was that snake was assessing, was I too close for comfort? And if I was, it would go on alert. When I got out of range, he calmed down. And that's the problem with that lizard brain. It's just looking to see, is there something putting you at risk? And here's where the, the lizard brain and then the human brain combination fits in. Because that part of the brain is, is your very primitive part. It doesn't even use words. But there's another part that's reading what your body's telling you and going, okay, what's, what's wrong here? How am I at risk? How am I in danger? And so because of that, that part of the brain is, is responding to irrational things. For instance, there are a lot of people who tell me how fearful they are of flying in a plane. And that's an irrational fear if you look at the statistics because they're happy to drive across the country. I once had a boss that would drive all the way from where we are halfway across the country, really more than about three quarters of the way across the country to get to a conference. And he would take a couple of days in his car to get there because he was too fearful to fly. 
The flying was not the dangerous part. The drive from his house to the airport was much more dangerous, statistically speaking. It's an irrational fear. And we have lots of those irrational fears around us. And that's one way to know that that brain is, that lizard brain is what's really controlling it because it, there's not a rationality to that, that part of the brain. The irrational fear or a fear response, whether it's irrational or not, leads to a physical response, the adrenaline response. Our body is flooded with adrenaline, and when our body is flooded with adrenaline, our, the rest of our brain begins to try to make sense of that. And then we begin to have this strong drive to avoid whatever it is that triggered that adrenaline response. So we have this constant place where there is a, an irrational fear kicked in by that part of the brain. And then there's a drive to avoid it. Or let me say it more clearly, a fear that is often irrational. Sometimes it's not entirely irrational. That snake had a reason to fear me getting close. That snake had a reason to calm down when I was away. When I'm running on a trail and I see a crooked stick, it could be a snake. And so there is a rational reason why I might go on alert. But then after that, as I'm running along and I become more fearful of other things, I've moved from the rational to the irrational. So really, there are two levels to these fears that we're talking about. One is the imagined threats, and the other is the important things. The imagined threats and the important things. So imagined threats are those places where you think you might get hurt. When my kids were younger, we went to the Grand Canyon. And if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know that while it is a national park, it is not Disney World. You can easily tumble off the path and go right over the canyon. And many people have uh, lost their lives in the canyon. So when my kids would careen towards the edge of the canyon... It was not an irrational fear going on. I could imagine what could happen to them if they just stumbled. And so I had a frightened response, a fearful response to that. That wasn't so much about an important thing as much as a safety issue. Now, I'm not saying that safety issues aren't important, but when I'm talking about important things, I'm talking about the big things in your life, the big things you want to accomplish. And that's really where we want to make sure that we make the biggest impact on taming the fears. If your child is running towards the canyon wall, I don't want to tame that fear. I don't want to stop that fear. I don't want to end that fear. I want that fear to create a response in you that keeps that child away from danger. If you're crossing the street and you hear a car coming your way, I don't want to tame that fear that keeps you from getting out of the way. But we want to look at the fears that really hold us back in life. So this is not about stamping out the fears as much as making sure that fears don't dominate your life and control you, that your dragon, your fear dragon, isn't growing stronger and stronger and keeping you from moving forward in the ways that you want to. So we have these same bodily responses, whether it's the fears that we've assessed or the fears that are important things, the things we want to aim. So how do we want to do that? Well, the first thing is we do want to assess every threat. Is it truly a threat? And then we want to aim at the important things. If this is important to me, I'm going to move forward. Martha Beck is one of my favorite authors and and really coaches. And she says that uh, one way of, of dealing with this is looking at the important threats and looking at the important fears and ask yourself this question. I want blank, but I'm afraid blank. So I want to write a book, but I'm afraid that people might laugh at me or I'm afraid that it won't sell. And, and I say this because that was one of my concerns as I began the process years ago of writing. I want to write a book. 
I want to contribute to people's well-being, but I'm afraid, and here's my fear, that I'll walk into the bookstore and I'll find my book in the bargain book section, you know, the dollar book, because it never sold. So how did that play out? Well, years ago, uh, I created a DVD on dealing with your stress, and it did sell. But one day, I walked into our local Barnes & Noble and found it in the bargain bin. I no longer have that fear because it's happened. You know, I've gotten beyond it. But think about those things where you find yourself fearful because of something important. I want to find the love of my life, but I'm afraid to be rejected. And you begin to see that those big I wants and I'm afraids are linked together, but the I want is the important part. The I want is what pulls us along. And so Martha Beck says that we should look at two rules. Rule number one is don't play with poison. So if you look at your fears and you realize that it's something that could be at risk, I want to take a drug, that's playing with poison, right? Uh, And so I want to rob a bank is playing with poison, And so we want to stay away from those. We want to decide not to play with poison. And when she talks about poison, it's it's doing the things that really do put us at risk. And so for those reasons, I would say I'm not going to go base jumping. That's for me is playing with poison. Now, I know people who base jump and they don't see it as that, but I do for myself. So I'm not going to play with poison. And rule number two for her is to be useful. Don't just do something for one reason. I want to uh, I want to paddleboard down the Ohio River. Well, I could do that and raise money for cancer. In other words, I could take what it is that is is a big thing and make it bigger, make it more important. So how do you want to tame your fear dragon? Let me propose four different steps, four distinct steps for you to take of how you tame it. These are the rules of taming the dragon. Number one, call the dragon out. Call it out. That dragon has a voice. But it's still just a lizard. Sometimes we have to say what it is that's causing that that fear, to question it. And so whenever I find myself having a fearful response, I ask the question, what is it that's making me feel this way? What is it that I'm fearing? And to call it out, to use that voice and to, to talk back to that lizard is an important part of the process. Just to say, this is what this is about. Because that leads us to the second stage, assess. Is this dangerous or is it important? And sometimes it's dangerous and important. And so if it's dangerous to minimize or avoid the danger part. So when I've talked to my very high-end adventuresome friends who do base jumping and things like that, I, I started the conversation by saying, aren't you afraid? To which they said, absolutely. But I use that fear to make sure that I'm on my toes, to make sure that I'm really watching out. When I've done some technical diving, and I will tell you, I don't do uh, deeply technical scuba diving because of the risk factor, but when I've done something that's been somewhat technical, I know it going in of what's going to happen. And so I prepare extra carefully because my fear response, I know I'm fearful because of the reality of that danger. So I make sure that there's a redundant air supply, and I make sure that my buddy and I both understand how we're going to communicate, and I make sure we have a plan of how we're going to do it, and we execute that plan. All of that is based in taking the fear that's coming my way and turning it into a mitigation factor. So you minimize or avoid the, the, the danger points. 
When you decide to maybe raft down the river and you get to that place where the, the rafting is just too technical, too dangerous, you avoid it. You walk around it. But when it's on the edge, you do what you can to minimize the danger. So if it is truly a danger, to minimize or avoid the danger. If it's important to maximize and pursue that. It's not uh, something that where you write the smallest piece, for instance, if you want to write a book, but you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after this. I'm really going to go for it. Years ago, when I was writing my dissertation, I was stuck. And the reason I was stuck is because I had made the dissertation the thing I had to write, not something I had to write, but the thing I had to write, the project that I would write in my life. And so my professor walked me down to the library, and he asked me to pull his dissertation off the shelf. And I pulled his off and opened it up and saw that it had been checked out, checked out four times. And I said, well, I mean, four people looked at it. He said, yeah, two of those are mine. And what he was saying to me was, don't make this to be a big deal. It's not a big deal. So he was minimizing what I felt was the risk. Now that I'm in the midst of launching several books, I realize that I want to maximize this, that I want to pursue this, because if I have something to say, I want to make sure I've said it. And so part of what I do now is not to minimize the feeling of it, but to say, I've got to move towards this and make it important and make it not just a little important, but the important thing to maximize and pursue and really bring something good into the world. So if something is important, maximize it, go after it. Pursue it as much as you can. So you want to assess, then aim, and the aim is to have a step-by-step plan to make sure that you know exactly how you're going to get to where you're going to. If you have a dream, but you have no plan, it's not going anywhere. It's going to be stuck, and, and there is not going to be the actualization of it. So what we're doing here is talking about having a dream and then creating a step-by-step plan to get there. And then to step in and find coaching and accountability to make sure you hold to that. A coach can help you strategize and a coach can help to make sure that you're staying on track. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a professional coach. There are plenty of life coaches and all kinds of executive coaches around that can help you with it. But there are also friends who will coach you through this. Friends who will listen to you when you say, I'm terrified about doing this. And they push you on a little bit further. And then they are people who will hold you accountable. How's that project going? How are you moving along in that process? And then the big one is cut off retreat. Find no way out. One way is to proclaim it to the world. You know, one of the things I've heard people say is that they have moved forward because they've bet uh, against themselves in some ways. So sometimes they will say, if I don't do something by this date, I'm going to donate to this cause that I absolutely despise. And in doing that, they cut off all retreat. They make sure they're going to do it. So I had a friend who was so opposed to a certain political thing, and and he knew he had to get this workshop going. And so he said, if I don't have that workshop going by this date, I'm going to give, and it was a substantial amount of money, to this program that he despised. And he now had made it public. And he made it so public that he had to follow through. He cut off all retreat. You don't have to go to that level, but cut off your retreat. Make sure you have no way of getting out of it. Here we are at the holidays. If you're listening to this as it's coming out, you can proclaim at the holiday party that by next year, you're going to have this accomplished, whatever it is. You're going to find the love of your life, write the great book, create the movie, write a script, 
whatever it is, climb the highest mountain if you want to. But by next year, here's where you're going to be. Or by two years, here's where you're going to be. And then make it so public that everybody's going to ask you about it the next year. Cut off the retreat. So you assess to make sure that if it's dangerous, you've mitigated all the risks you can. If it's important, you've decided to pursue it and maximize it and go after it. Then you aim with a step-by-step guide. You find your coaching that will bring you also accountability. You've cut off your retreat and then you actualize. And this is the big step that I see so many people fail out. You actualize it. What does that mean to actualize it? You get started. It's not enough to have a plan. I've talked to many people and said, hey, do you have a plan? And they'll tell me, yes, they have a plan. And I'll say, have you gotten started? No, they haven't gotten started. A plan is great mental exercise, but goes nowhere unless it's actualized. So be sure that you actualize, you get started. So remember this about feeding and taming the dragon. You feed the dragon by avoiding what you're fearful of. You starve the dragon by action. Avoiding feeds action starves. Tame the dragon of fear by getting started, going towards those important things. You can avoid the risk. You can mitigate all the risk you want to, but you still have to find those places that are important to you and tame that beast so you get to the life that you want to build. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.